The book of Revelation, chapter 14. After writing and telling us about the dragon and the two beasts and all the damage that they will do to the church and the people of God, John writes in the beginning of chapter 14 of the Lamb who is victorious, standing on Mount Zion with his people, those who sing a new song, who have his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads, those who have been redeemed from the earth, who are his disciples, who are blameless and no lies found in their mouth. As we saw last week, the rest of the chapter, uh, beginning at verse 6 to the end of the chapter, is divided into seven sections, in which we see seven persons mentioned Three angels, then the Lord Jesus Christ, one like the Son of Man, and then three more angels. That is, Jesus is in the midst of his angels. Last Sunday, I spoke of the first three angels, those who speak words of warning and judgment. Um, it is their speaking and what they say that is the focus um, while as in the, the second three it will be more the action. Two of them speak, but it is the actions that result from their speaking that is the focus. The first angel we saw last week proclaims the eternal gospel, saying, Fear God, give him glory, the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This is the gospel. The second angel announces the fall of Babylon, Babylon the Great, that is Jerusalem. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And then the third angel says in a loud voice that there is judgment coming on those who worship the beast and receive his mark. The judgment is seen in terms of torment, a torment of burning sulfur, as we saw with Sodom and Gomorrah. But this seems to be an eternal torment, that the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. It is a torment without rest. And then there's a break of sorts, and we saw this last week, that John hears a voice from heaven saying, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And the statement is not so much about the nature of their deaths, that they die terrible deaths or they die as martyrs, Rather, the focus is on their lives, because the Spirit then says, yes, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. So the focus is not on their deaths, but on their lives. That is, the work they did and the labor that they did for the Lord. Today we continue in chapter 14, beginning at verse number 14. We'll begin with the first three verses here, 14, 15, and 16. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. These three verses form sort of the centerpiece of this entire section of the chapter. We have three angels who have made proclamations. 
We have three more that will be involved with symbolic actions, both having to do with the land of Israel. In the center of it all is someone who is sitting on a white cloud, that someone looks like a son of man. I would remind you that the language here is that of the Old Testament. That being the case, we need to think about clouds as they are mentioned in the Old Testament. We know about the pillar of cloud that guided Israel in the daytime through the wilderness. We know about the clouds that surrounded Mount Sinai. But here we have something different. It is a white cloud. So we look in the Old Testament for mention of white cloud and we don't find one. So that's a little frustrating, a little disconcerting. But we have something here that will help us because we're not simply told of a white cloud, but that there is someone sitting on that cloud who looks like a son of man. That we have in the Old Testament. That comes from uh, Daniel chapter 7. And those of you who have an NIV, you may notice at the bottom uh, it has a footnote there mentioning uh, Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. Interestingly enough, this is one of the few footnotes in the book of Revelation where you have a direct reference to an Old Testament passage. Uh, in Daniel 7, we have a record of a vision that Daniel had. And let me just read to you part of it. In my vision, at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power over all, I'm sorry, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this is obviously referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come to verse number 14 here in Revelation 14, why doesn't John simply say the lamb? Because we saw him in verse one or the Lord Jesus Christ or the lion of Judah. I mean, why is he here called the son of man? I think there is a point that God is trying to make through John here. Let the dragon do his worst. Let the beasts do their worst. The Son of Man has ascended into heaven. He has everlasting dominion over all people and nations. John is continuing with the same theme that he has been going through in chapter 14. Yes, the dragon and the beast are going to do incredible damage against the church. But let them do their worst. The Son of Man is sitting on the throne. We see here a connection between the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And that, I think, is where the white comes in, by the way. If you go to Daniel chapter 7, he says, The Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. So that's the white, and then the Son of Man on clouds, and John sort of puts these all together where the Son of Man is sitting on a white cloud. But the the point, again, is clear. And let me repeat. Jesus reigns. Not in the future. Not in some magical time when everything will be fine. Jesus rules now. Why is God making this point? And why is he doing it over and over again? Because the circumstances of the lives of the people who are going to read the book of Revelation for the first time, that first generation the circumstances of their lives would indicate otherwise. 
their circumstances would scream that Jesus is not in control, that God is not in control. But John says, yes, he is. He has a golden crown on his head. We have the 144,000, the church, God's people who are numbered. And they stand victorious with the Lamb. Circumstances indicate one thing, the reality is something else. John tells us one more thing about the Son of Man. He has a sharp sickle in his hand. And as the fourth angel will indicate, this sickle is for harvesting. Now, there are two types of harvest in the Bible. In this chapter, but in the rest of Scripture as well. One is a blessing. The second is judgment. But I think that we tend to think only in terms of judgment. We only tend to think of judgment at the end of time. Um, I hope to show you that there are in fact two kinds and there are two different things that are intended here. The first meaning of the harvest here is a blessing. It is the gathering of God's people. If you read the teachings of Jesus, he uses harvest in this way time and time again. And let me read you from three different Gospels, three different passages that deal with harvesting. From the Gospel of Mark, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. So there is the connection with the kingdom of God. Perhaps more familiar to you is from John chapter 4. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. I'm not sure that that still sort of opens it up, but Mark tells us that this is what the kingdom of God is like, planting and harvesting. Jesus says that the harvest is now, and it is time to put in the sickle to the harvest. But I think it is in Matthew that we have it all sort of come together. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. That is, harvesting as Jesus sees it is evangelism. It is doing the work of preaching the gospel and bringing God's people into the church. And I think this is what John is indicating in this part of his vision. That the Son of Man has brought his people into the kingdom. Because this angel comes out of the temple and says need to put that sickle, you need to harvest. And so the Son of Man does precisely that. And he brings in his people into the kingdom of heaven. But that's only one aspect of the harvest. It's usually not the one we think of, but it is an important part. The gathering of the church. But what is the other? The other has to do with judgment. Let's read verses 17 to 20 here, the, uh, the end of the chapter. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle 
and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered the grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle, bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Here we have another angel, the fifth angel, who also, like the Son of Man, has a sharp sickle. It is the sixth and final angel who gives him instructions. The one, this angel, who comes from the altar who has charge of the fire. Um, these images are very similar to what we saw in chapter 8. There is a connection between worship and judgment. The angel that represents worship, the altar of incense, and the coals of fire. He speaks the word of judgment. Let me just digress here for a minute. You may wonder, as I certainly did, why is it that an angel tells Jesus what to do? Did you notice that in verses 14 through 16? An angel comes out of the temple and tells the Son of Man, he tells Jesus, get your sickle, it's time to harvest. And I'm thinking, listen, this is, this is the Son of God, this is Jesus. He doesn't need you to give him instructions. In the second case, we have an angel from the temple giving instructions to another angel, and that I think we're sort of okay with. Well, the temple represents the presence of God, the place of God's holiness, and therefore the angels are coming from the presence of God himself with a holy message, and the message is to put the sickle in and to harvest the crop. This angel that tells the Son of Man to do this is speaking to the Son of Man who is the mediator. And the message is this, gather your people. Um, Jesus is very clear, and if you go through John's Gospel, this comes up time and time again. Jesus was sent by the Father. He was sent by the Father to do the Father's work. Jesus coming into the earth isn't something he chose to do on his own. This is something he is doing in obedience to the Father. And therefore, as he gathers, in Paul's words, his bride, but in John's word, the harvest, he is doing so because he is obeying his Father in heaven who has given him these instructions. What about the angel that comes from the altar? Well, we've seen that this represents worship, specifically the prayers of the saints. And what do the, the saints pray for? They pray for justice. How long, O Sovereign Lord? Well, now it's time. Now it is time for judgment. This angel is going to achieve what the saints have prayed for in their worship. That is justice. And therefore, this harvest, this second meaning of harvest, is judgment. I think this is what most Jews thought of in light of the Old Testament. It is what most people think of, I think, even today. Let me read to you uh, from the Old Testament. From the earliest of the prophets, the book of Joel. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes. For the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. And here we have the second part of the imagery, that of the winepress and of putting the grapes in and God's wrath coming upon them. 
Now let me read to you from Isaiah 63. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor striding forth or forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So the question is, who is this? And it is God, God who is coming forth. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From, from the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments. I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm has worked salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. A rather graphic picture, but one that I think to us may not necessarily mean very much. If you have grape juice, you buy it from the store. If you have wine, you buy it from the store. We don't generally make our own. But for those who did in the ancient world, they would have a wine press. And that is, it would be cut out of stone and, uh, and of a hard stone. You don't want something that's porous that will absorb it. It would be cut into the side of a hill usually. And then they would put the grapes in there and people then would hopefully wash their feet. And then they would get in there barefooted and they would stomp on the grapes. That's how they would get the grape juice out of it. And there would be a section that would allow the juice to flow out. And that's how they would get the grape juice, which they would then make into wine. The picture here is of what God is going to do to pagan nations. That is from Isaiah 53. It is now brought into Revelation. This is what God is going to do to Israel, those who have broken the covenant. And the picture seems to be not a gentle wrath, if there is such a thing. It is something far worse than that. If you notice in the passage from Isaiah, first of all, God is doing this alone. And so that might explain why you have all this splattering. But we are told that his entire, all his clothes are stained. Now, you would expect, because they would pull up their robes around their knees as they're stomping. Yes, you'd get grape juice that would stain the bottom of your clothes. But why would all your clothing be stained? This would seem to indicate a certain enthusiasm, if you wish, a certain vigor. That it isn't simply that God is sort of slowly, you know, trotting, that he's jumping up and down. And it isn't because he's happy about this, but it is the vigor it is the anger of his wrath that is being poured out. So here in Revelation 14, we have the winepress of God's wrath. And it is a violent wrath. So much so that we are, to we are told, and now we make the transition from grape juice to blood. The picture of grape juice now is blood. That the blood rose as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Some translations have 200 miles, which is approximately what 1,600 stadia is, but they sort of miss the, miss the point. The NIV has a footnote, I don't know if you noticed that, that it's uh, about 180 miles, it's actually 184 miles, 300 kilometers. But again, this misses the point of numbers. 
1,600. That's four times four. Four is the number of the land of Israel. Four squared. That's 16. A hundred is ten squared. In the Bible, we have two kinds of completeness. Seven is the perfection of quality. Ten is the completion or the perfection of quantity. You have the full amount. So ten times ten, that's the whole thing. Four times four, that is the land of Israel. This is a wrath that is full and complete. It is God's wrath that will be poured out on them. Why 1600 stadia? Well, I've told you, the 4-4, the 10-10. Interestingly enough, the length of Israel is about 1600 stadia. It's about 200 miles. And so we're getting more than one message here that it is God's wrath being poured out in an unprecedented way against Israel. And it is Israel, the nation that is 1600 stadia long. But what about the horse's bridle? This is not to be taken literally, though many times people have done so. Rather, it recalls something from the Old Testament. The incident at the Red Sea. When Pharaoh and his horsemen, the chariots, the waters came in and they went up to the horse's bridle and beyond. This is the picture that is intended of complete devastation. And you might say, well, okay, Damon, that's interesting, but I don't buy that. That's your prerogative. But when we get to chapter 15, the very next passage, John takes us into heaven. And in heaven, the people are singing the song of Moses. That can't be a coincidence. That the horse's bridle and the song of Moses being put together, I think that what is indicated is a wrath of God, four by four, ten by ten, and as high as it was at the Red Sea against Pharaoh and his army. John is not simply telling us, boy, there's going to be a lot of blood. Yes, there was in 70 AD a tremendous amount of blood. But it's much more than that. Those who have broken God's covenant suffer the consequences. They suffer the wrath of God. And then we are told, and I don't know if you notice it, it says that they were trampled in the winepress outside the city. For me, this is the key to this entire passage. This one phrase, the wine press outside the city. When Jesus was on trial before Pilate, Pilate figuratively and literally tried to wash his hands of the whole business. He knew Jesus was innocent. He knew Jesus should not be put to death. But he had pressure from the crowd. You know, they like, listen, if you don't do this, you're not Caesar's friend. So he really felt the pressure. And so he said to them, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. And they answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. This is from Matthew 27. Now, we're very familiar with that passage. I mean, every Easter, you know, the passion and all that. But I think we don't understand the context. The context, again, is the Old Testament. God had set up a system of justice in the Old Testament quite unfamiliar to us. And that is, if somebody accidentally killed somebody, let's say you're out chopping wood and you you swing and the axe head goes off and kills somebody, what are you supposed to do? 
Well, God set up six cities of refuge, three on the west side of the Jordan, three on the east side. And you were to run to the city and stay there and you would be safe there. You had to stay there. And in giving the instructions, this is what God tells Israel about this whole business. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. And so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. In other words, when you shed innocent blood, that blood is on you. It's on your head. And God said, listen, I've set up a system of justice so the blood won't be on you. Let's go back to Pilate. And the people say, yeah, his blood is on us. If he's innocent, yeah, we'll take the fall. We don't think he's innocent. We're convinced he's not innocent. But if he is innocent, then yeah, we'll take the blood. It'll be on us and on our children. So they put Jesus to death. But where do they put him to death? Outside the city of Jerusalem. Now, there are different reasons for this. One is geographic. You don't want to crucify somebody within the city walls. You want to do that outside because you know, it's gruesome and everything. And so you, you take them outside to the place of execution. But there's a theological reason for it as well. And the writer of the letter to the Hebrews tells us, the high priest carries the blood of, the, of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But their bodies are burned outside the camp. In other words, you sacrifice an animal, the blood goes on the altar, but the body goes out. You put the body outside the camp. The writer now makes a connection. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate. To make his people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we look for the city that is to come. That is to say, outside the city, outside the camp, I guess we could use theological terms, you're, you're excommunicated. You're not part of us. You're other. You're outside. And the Romans crucified Jesus outside the city because that's where they did it. But prophetically, it is very important. Jesus is kicked out, if you wish. He's not part of Jerusalem. He's not part of Israel. He's being kicked out. He's being disgraced. Kicked out of the people. That's where he's put to death. Outside is the place of judgment. Outside is where Jesus was put to death. With that in mind, the choice is now presented to people. Do you want to live inside the city or do you want to go outside the city? The writer to the Hebrew says, let's go outside the city. That's where Jesus is. That's where the disgrace is. That's okay. We'll take the disgrace. He took the disgrace. We'll go with him. We will stand with him. Or is the social pressure so strong is the desire to be part of the crowd so strong that, no, no, I'm going to stay inside the camp. I'm going to stay inside the city. I'm not going to go out with Jesus, the one who is disgraced. So you have two people. Those who are with Jesus outside. Those who reject Jesus who stay inside. But when God's wrath comes, things are reversed. 
Jesus now has the new Jerusalem. Jesus now has his own people. He has his own city. And those who have rejected him, they are put outside the city. Do you see it? It is the great reversal. Those in the city who put him out, now he has a city and they are put out. And John describes it here as the wine press outside the city. God's wrath comes on them, and now they are not part of God's people. They are not part of the New Jerusalem. They are not part of the holy city. They are not a part of God's people, the 144,000. They do not stand with the Lamb. They will be put outside. And as we go through Revelation, as we come closer to the end, and we're given more and more descriptions of hell, the one thing that comes up over and over again is that it is outside the presence of God. Jesus describes it as outer darkness, outside. And what does this all mean? And, and what can we take with us today as we leave? And that, I think, this passage illustrates so clearly, things are not the way they seem to be. As I said in Sunday school, you know, if Jesus is ruling right now, then we may have a bone to pick with him because he's not doing a very good job. At least by what we can see, the Lamb is not victorious. The Son of Man is not sitting on the cloud with a golden crown on his head. That, that's got to be future because things are really messed up right now. Or so they seem to us. In the same way that Jesus is seen as disgraced, under judgment, excommunicated, put outside the city. The reality is, he's the Son of Man. And those who put him outside of the city, they will experience the wrath of God. The winepress of his wrath outside the city. I think one of the, the great benefits, one of the great gifts of the book of Revelation is it should wake us up to the fact that things are not the way they seem to be. They're not the way they seem to be. There is the wonderful story in the Old Testament of the prophet of God who is being harassed and hounded. And finally he is found in a city and he is encircled by the enemies who want to kill him. And his assistants are like, what are we going to do? Master, what are we going to do? And he said, don't worry about it. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. He's like, he doesn't say this, but pretty much, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then the prophet says, Lord, open his eyes. And then suddenly he could see chariots of fire surrounding the city. John is in essence telling us, you can only see this part of it. Let me show you what's behind the curtain. And what is behind the curtain is that the Son of Man is sitting on a throne. He has a golden crown. He has brought his people into the kingdom of God. The dragon, the beast, all their people, for a time may seem victorious, but one day they will experience the winepress of God's wrath. It's the great reversal. The first will be last, the last will be first. If we would have the patience and the grace to see this, I think it might change the way we live our lives. Let's pray together.
Father, we live in a time of unprecedented knowledge. We live in a time when we have access to so much knowledge. We seem to be surrounded by experts. And as we breathe in the air of the culture, we tend to feel a certain expertise ourselves. And when we look at our circumstances and what's going on in our lives, we think we know what's going on. We think we have a right to complain that things aren't going the way we think they should. I thank you for the book of Revelation and how John, by your spirit, shows us that things are not simply the way they appear to us. That he looks behind the curtain and he sees what is really going on. That Jesus reigns. That he is gathering in his church. And one day those who oppose him will be judged. He who was put outside the city is now King of kings and Lord of lords. And those who put him outside the city will themselves be trampled in the winepress outside the city. These are difficult words. We ask for strength, for patience and endurance to understand what is written. I thank you that we could meet together today to worship you. I ask that you would keep us safe, particularly because of this heat and in good health. We give thanks for all your many gifts in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? Before I read the benediction, we want to publicly thank John uh, for all that he does for us in our worship. Uh, he had a birthday this past Friday, and we have a birthday present for him. It's not here yet. It's in the mail. Seriously. Um, but John, here's a card from us, and we have another card we will give you after the service. And we just wanted to thank you. He's uh, a dear brother who, who helps us so much in our worship. I thought that for our benediction today, we would choose a passage that was John's and Susan's grandfather's favorite passage uh, from the book of Jude. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. We have some refreshments in the back room uh, as we celebrate the birthdays.